0: Turn, if you will, again to John chapter 11. Should we continue our study, John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 27 today in the middle of this account of Lazarus. Uh, you know, nobody likes funerals. I know pastors don't and uh, certainly family members don't and friends don't I just don't know anybody that likes funerals there is one good thing about funerals I've noticed there the reality of death cuts through all the layers of religious barnacles that attach themselves to us over the years there is where the rubber meets the road spiritually in our faith There we can often observe whether our Christianity is real or whether it's just a cultural thing that we inherited from our parents. For there in the face of death, our faith either sounds very hollow and starts to fall apart or it thrives and makes us bold and assured. Depends on what it's made of. When it's tested by death. In our text this morning, Jesus has gone back to Bethany and he's arrived just after Lazarus's funeral, still in the time of mourning. Everybody's still around. It's quite an event in those days. And as we listen to Jesus' interaction with Lazarus' sister Martha, we learn something about the difference that, uh, uh, the difference between faith that survives death and faith that does not. Let me read it. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she's told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Here we have something of Mary's attitude and something of Jesus' response to Mary. And I think that there are two things we ought to learn, one from Mary and one from what Jesus says to her. The first is this. Don't let... Life's sorrow harden your faith. Don't let life's sorrow harden your faith. You know, most of us, in addition to whatever formal education we've had, have taken a few extension courses in the School of Hard Knocks. Sometimes that's been our most valuable training. It it tends to make us wiser, more practical, seasoned. Different perspective, but the school of hard knocks has its downside too. For sometimes it can make us cynical, hardened, especially toward the Lord. I think that's what happened to Martha here. The death of her brother had been a lesson in the school from the school of hard knocks. But she came out a bit disillusioned. A bit cynical, hardened in her soul toward her friend Jesus, who she called Lord. We see it coming out in a couple of ways. First of all, she's demanding. Martha had a little problem with this. Remember the incident before when she got upset at her sister and came to Jesus and said, Tell my sister to get up and get busy. Help me. We thought that maybe that had changed. You remember the message that she sent to Jesus, she and Martha? Lord, the one you love is sick. We talked about that last week. Here here, Mary and Martha are resting in Jesus' love. He loves Lazarus. If he knows, that's enough. But now listen to her. Verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? She say. She had an agenda. Jesus should be here. He should be here when I call. And he should be here doing what I want. Jesus let her down. He didn't do what she wanted. He didn't come when she called. He wasn't there. And the consequences were terrible. Lazarus died. She wants an answer. Well, admittedly, there's a sound of faith. And I know you. whatever the Lord, you ask, God will do. Except she doesn't really believe that, because later when Jesus asked her to roll the stone, she says, no way. <laughs> stinks. He's been in there four days. She didn't really believe Jesus could do whatever he asked of the Father. I fear that this has a familiar ring to it. We believe in Jesus. We love all of his promises. We expect him to come through for us when we ask. But if he doesn't, well, he's got some explaining to do. You promised. I asked. You didn't do what I said. The second issue with Martha, though, is not just her demanding spirit that comes out, but her disappointment profoundly changed her faith, I think. We would probably say she was disillusioned. She learned from the school of hard knocks not to expect so much. Her idealism that the Lord Jesus was really a factor in her life kind of got shattered. Now she's more realistic about her faith. We see that in this exchange in verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, Martha, your brother's going to rise. And what does she say? Oh, thank you, Lord. I knew that you hadn't forgotten about us. Lord, I knew that your your wisdom and your power was perfect. And that, oh, man, oh, people are going to see your glory, Lord. Oh, no, she didn't say that. She says rather dispassionately, I suspect. Yeah, I know he's going to rise on the last day. You see what's happened here? Martha still believed the right things. She accepted the biblical teaching of the rabbis of the resurrection someday. But something died in her. She had trusted Jesus, sent him word of Lazarus' illness, rested in his love, and he let her down And she was not about to get her hopes up again. Something died inside. Martha's faith has been reduced to a system of facts. Well, she's not abandoned her faith, but she has become hardened. Her faith consists of facts from the past, once upon a time, And facts about the distant future in the sweet by and by. But it has nothing to do with today. It doesn't touch the reality of this moment anymore. It doesn't even address the realities of this hard, cold world where she lives and grieves. She let life harden her. Sound familiar? I suspect that this has been played out many times even in the lives of us who sit in this room. There was a time when you were zealous, believed God was a factor in every decision, in every moment of life. But then he didn't do what you thought. You asked and he didn't seem to answer and you got so disappointed and perhaps angry that you just wanted to walk away and say, I don't don't believe any of that stuff anymore. But maybe you couldn't bring yourself to reject the Lord outright. Maybe you didn't want to have to take on all the criticism of your Christian family or friends. And so instead, you just pushed the whole matter back into ancient history or pushed it out into the distant future you have a faith of the past or faith of some vague hope for eternity but as for today not really a factor don't have that kind of faith anymore you see what's happened you let life's sorrow Pardon your soul. Folks, everyone has disappointments. We live in a sad, fallen world. Everybody I know has disappointed me. And I have disappointed them. And no one understands why God does what he does or why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. God is God. We understood and we'd be God. Who are we to demand of him? And how foolish to think that God was God long ago and he will be again someday, but today he's not a player. Either he's God or he's not, past, present, and future. Don't let life's sorrows harden your soul. a song by Keith Green that I love probably my very favorite Keith Green song because it addresses this issue when I find it in my own heart I'll put the words up here while I read them to you before we come to the Lord's table in a few moments if you find this hardness in your heart Make this your prayer. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. But I know how I ought to be. Alive to you. Dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Learn a lesson from Martha. Don't let life's sorrow harden your soul. There's another lesson I think we need to learn from our text, and this is we learn from the way the Lord addresses Martha's uh, attitude. And that lesson is this, that Jesus is the life. So trust him. Jesus is the life. So trust him. The other night before the lunar eclipse, I read in the paper the best place to view it would be up on Artist Point or get in your boat and get as far away from land as you can. In other words, in the darkest place you will see the light the best. I just thought how that's often true in our lives, isn't it? In the darkest times, in the most discouraging times, the most confusing times, it's often when we really... See the light. It's often, when we really learn new truths and have our faith radically change because we're so shut up in the darkness that we perceive the light when it comes. So, it's not surprising that here, when Martha's in Martha's darkest hour, in the midst of her disillusionment and discouragement, that here the Lord Jesus teaches her about faith. Here, He teaches her what is lacking in her faith. I think there are a couple things that are lacking in her faith. One, she failed to focus her faith on Jesus himself. She failed to focus her faith on Jesus himself. Her faith, as we said a minute ago, had become a, a bunch of impersonal facts. Sure, I know about the resurrection. Sure, I believe in eternal life. I believe my brother will rise someday. Facts. But Jesus stops her short in verse 25. Martha. Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Here for the sixth time in this book, Jesus calls himself, I am, the name reserved for Yahweh, Jehovah. As D.A. Carson explains, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from abstract belief in what will take place on the last day to divert it from that to a personalized belief in Him who alone can provide that. You see, Martha believed, but she just believed impersonal facts. She believed in God. She believed Jesus had power to heal. She believed the dead would rise, but she didn't trust Jesus. She didn't trust His wisdom to know whether to come or not come. She didn't trust that he knew what he was doing now. She didn't trust him personally, understanding that he is the one who has life and resurrection. She didn't rest her living and her dying and Lazarus living and Lazarus dying in his faithful hands. Her faith was a system of doctrine. But she didn't trust Jesus. And so Jesus says, Martha, Martha, and he says to us, wiser like Chapel, brothers and sisters, trust me. Not enough to have the right facts and to believe them and give assent to them, to know all the things you're supposed to know. Not enough. Jesus is calling us to a personalized faith, to be united with him in a relationship of absolute trust. We need to understand the difference between belief and trust. Though the same word is used throughout the scripture. There's a very profound difference in how we perceive believing things and, and how we perceive trusting. I believe in Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. I know some facts about them. I believe that they were a great asset to our country. I hold them in high regard. I feel indebted to them. I believe in them. Oh, but I trust my wife. I know facts about her, too. But they're not impersonal, historical facts. I rest in her love. I trust what she will do. We live in a personal relationship of mutual confidence. You see, there's a difference between believing in my wife and believing in George Washington. I trust my wife. I don't even know George Washington. I just know about him. Jesus says, trust me. I am the life giver, the eternal I am. I don't want you to just know all about me. I want you to trust me. Does that describe your faith? Would you describe your belief in Jesus as a personal relationship with someone that you know? Or is it just a bunch of facts that you learned in a catechism class somewhere and you can hardly remember anyway? Do you talk to him? Do you spend time with him? Do you stonewall him? That's not how you treat people. You trust. You run to him in trouble. You run away from him. Because you're afraid of him. Because you don't trust him. Jesus is the I am. The life. Trust him. And Martha's faith had another problem that Jesus addressed. her faith had become irrelevant to her present circumstances. We talked about that. Faith in the past, faith in the future. but what about today? She believed the faith of the fathers, facts, eternal life, believing in God. But in regard to her help to her present situation, she was hopeless. Here she is talking to the great I am. Jehovah, the son, she's in despair. She's helpless. She's hopeless. She calls him the Messiah. She calls him the promised one. She calls him the son of God. But I'd had nothing to do with her miserable, grief-stricken situation. There was nothing immediate. There was nothing present tense about her faith. Jesus insists that she see him in terms of the present, not just the future. And so he made this wonderful statement, though somewhat confusing maybe, in verse 25 and 26. After saying, I'm the resurrection of life, he said, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says two things here. Two promises. The first is that he who believes in me Trust me. Even though he dies, he will come to life again. Here Jesus is speaking about the future resurrection. He is the resurrection. He guarantees it. He empowers it. He will accomplish it. So here's his promise. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, even though you die, which everyone will, you will come to life. You will be raised again on the last day. Everyone know how to be certain if you're going to heaven or not? This is it right here. Jesus is the one who raises the dead. He has resurrection power. Those who trust in him, who have come to the end of themselves and have stopped trusting themselves and transferred their trust to him, who no longer think that they're good enough but believe that he is merciful and he died for them, those who trust in him will live again, will come to life on Resurrection Day. It's Jesus' promise. Trust him. He's the life. You will live. But then Jesus goes on to say a second thing, and this is what Martha needed so much to hear. He who believes in me and therefore has life, lives now with spiritual life, that person will never die. Here Jesus' emphasis is not what's going on what's going to happen someday. Here he's talking about what's happening today. Jesus is the life giver right now. Those who believe in him live right now. And that life is of eternal quality. It will never end. The person will never die. our bodies will wear out. They'll put them in the ground. But the sting of death and judgment that makes death such a terrible reality is removed for those who are children of God. Death in Jesus is no more than walking through the door into the fullness of eternal life that we've been enjoying already. This is what Martha knew nothing about. Death was so tragic. Even the resurrection gave her no hope. God had let her down. She was in despair. But Jesus wants her to see the present spiritual reality that she had completely missed because Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. Those who know him, those who trust him, live right now with such a profound life that you have to say, Death is not even death for them anymore. They'll live forever. Pastor Bruce Milne put it this way. The life Jesus gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection. The very life of the deathless God himself. Moreover, it is his gift here and now. Martha believes in some such life at the distant horizon of history when the Messiah eventually appears. But Jesus invites her to reshape her hope radically. Resurrection life which triumphs over death is not confined to the distant future but is present here and now in him who is the resurrection and the life. Martha, do you believe this, Jesus said. Do you believe this? Well, no, she didn't quite get it. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who would come. That's not what he asked her. She didn't quite get it. She still couldn't really answer him directly. I don't think she still understood. Do you? Do you believe this? Do you understand that radical, eternal life is now being given to all who believe, who entrust themselves to Jesus? Folks, that's completely different than so much of the Christianity that we've seen all of our lives. We're talking about people who were dead to God, whether they were sitting in church or not. They were dead inside. They were slaves to sin, no matter what kind of front they put up, in fact, they serve sin inside. Those people being made alive inside and free of the bondage. We're talking about the living spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, coming to enliven us and live in us and walk with us. Oh, this is no trying to fill all the squares kind of religion. This is nothing less than and brand new life. And this morning, Jesus offers it to us. Jesus is the life. Trust Him. He will raise the dead, those who believe in Him. But He gives life right now to them first. So the death is not even death anymore. And so Jesus pressed Martha and he presses us this morning. I know you believe a lot of true facts. I know you know a lot of things about the faith. But do you trust me? Will you entrust your life and your circumstances to me? Will you rest confidently in me? Will you trust me to know what I'm doing? To know what's best. Will you trust me not just for pie in the sky by and by, but will you trust me today for your very life? Someone once said, you will die the way you lived. And I believe it. Those who've been trusting Jesus and enjoying his life die with confidence, knowing that they're entering life, eternal life, in all of its fullness. And those who live trusting themselves die the same way, still trusting themselves never able to bring themselves to trust the Savior. Jesus is the life. Trust Him now. Over the years, I've been to a lot of funerals, I've seen a lot of people die, more than I would like to have. Two incidents stick in my mind I'd like to tell you about as we close. My first church. Only a few weeks into my first pastorate, a man died. He was, his family was the backbone of this church. It's an 85-year-old man. Hardly an unforeseen tragedy, but his family was devastated. I was a young guy. the Second funeral I'd ever done. I was not prepared for what I was going to see. This so-called wonderful Christian family, absolutely grief-stricken, came apart at the seams. The scene at the graveside was ugly, screaming, wailing, angry at God. God had let them down. And I knew them for some years after that, and I don't think they ever forgave him. Letting their father die. They let life's sorrow harden their souls. The last time I saw them, they're some of the hardest people I ever saw. Cynical. Still sitting in the church, but cynical. Then I think of another experience a few years later. I saw Mrs. Capp just before she died. She's a friend of Jane's family. She too was 85 years old, remember? Her health had failed for months. She laid in her bed and we went by to see her. She was so weak, she could barely speak. Hard to talk. She said, sing with me. So we sang with her. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. There's no shadow Turning with thee, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, to me couldn't hear. You could see her mouth mouthing the words, and you could see the joy spreading across her face. You see, even in the face of death, she knew him who is the life. And she trusted him. Because he had never let her down. He had been faithful all these years, and he had not changed trusting him for decades. she trusted trust him as she died for it was only the entrance into life. Don't let life's sorrow harden you. Trust Jesus right now, today. He's the life. Now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Help us to digest it, for Lord, we struggle just like Martha does when we're disappointed. We're tempted to get hardened and cold. We're tempted to push you out of the immediate circumstances. Lord, teach us to know what it means that you are the resurrection and the life, and to walk with you and trust you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. to the Lord's Supper, we find out how this can all be true. It's because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, when his body was broken, his blood was poured out on the ground in payment for our sins, and that's how all these things can be true, that we can be refreshed, renewed, and uh, have new life right now, not just in eternity, but there as well. As we come to the Lord's Supper, I invite you to come to receive Jesus anew, though We don't need to receive Jesus again and again to be saved. We're saved once for all. And yet, there's a sense in which every time we hear his word, we either receive it or we harden ourselves. In the same way, every time we see the bread and and drink the cup and we touch it and we taste it, we either receive these things in faith and and, and allow them to point us and direct us to Jesus or, or we harden ourselves. So I invite you to receive in faith, not just the words of God, but the symbols, the pictures of his love for us and his death on the cross for us. As I invite you to eat the supper, I also warn you not to do so in some unworthy manner. It is just going through the motions with hard hearts and cold faith. The Lord warns us against such things. Not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Will the, uh, will the uh, uh, elders come and let's celebrate the supper together. Right. Thank you, Father, that you have given us new life in Jesus. And Lord, we never want to forget what that cost. We never want to forget how it is that you did that, that you took on human flesh, that you lived, Lord, in a body like us, you became one of us, except without sin. And then that you willingly went to the cross, Lord Jesus, and poured out your life's blood on the ground, wasted your life, it would seem, in order that we might be saved. You became the the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb who died in our place. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As we eat this bread, may we be reminded that this is not some far-off spiritual truth only, that this, Lord, is a very physical reality that in a body you hung on the cross. And as we drink the cup, may we realize, Lord, that it was your lifeblood with which you paid for our sin. May our hearts be drawn to you to love you and to trust you more. We eat the supper together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.